Turn again to the chapter we read in 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm reading at verses 6 and 7. First Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Peter, as we know, see at the beginning of the epistle, is writing to Christians who are being persecuted and they're suffering greatly for their faith. They have been scattered all over the place. And so that's how Peter begins his letter. He's writing to those Christians. He says to those who are elect exiles of dispersion. And so they've been scattered all over. And, of course, the fires of persecution were incredibly fierce at the beginning, or at the dawn, as it were, of the period of Christianity taking hold. And uh, there's nothing new, in a sense, because all over this world there is still great Christian persecution. Uh, it's part and partial of the world that we live in. It is the most illogical, when you think about it, it's the most illogical thing of all. And there is no person in the world like a true Christian who is seeking to promote good and seeking to promote peace and seeking to promote well-being amongst all society. And yet there is nobody who is more maligned and more hated by many than the Christian is. And we say to ourselves, why is that? Well, we don't need to go any further than look at the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. It tells us in Scripture, they hated him without a cause. There's no reason, but they hated him. And it all comes down to the inbuilt rebellion that's within our heart against God. Because at the very dawn of history, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they were driven out from the garden, that running away from God is our default position. We are at enmity with God. We do not want his rule or his reign. And so this opposition that Jesus Christ faced, Jesus said to his followers, not just to his immediate followers, but to his followers, all down throughout the generations, right down to our time, that we will suffer in this world because we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the times of persecution vary in place from one place to another, and there are also times when the church and the world seem to be much more at one, and particular, particularly maybe at times of, of revival where God's work is... at. Uh, uh, where God is doing a great work within communities. And we find that, the, that there is very little open opposition uh, to the Lord. But the more that the influence of God is withdrawn within a land, the more his cause faces opposition. And we can see it in our own land, that uh, over the course of the years, as there is no doubt whatever, that God hasn't, he hasn't re removed himself completely from us. 
but he is withdrawn to a certain extent, and he is, you can see how he's leaving ourselves in many situations to our own decisions. Because it's very obvious that uh, the nation, schools, they don't want God. There's, a, there's, just, there's been a, a movement for years to try to drive God out of all the public areas of life. And God, in a sense, is saying, well, if this is what you want, this is what you'll get, but this will be the result of it. And that's what we're reaping now in the day that we're living. And uh, so there is this growing opposition against the Christian faith. Now, Peter talks about how in us Christians we, we suffer, and we suffer many trials. In the previous chapter, he talks about uh, fiery trials in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Now, again, that's not something that appeals to us, because we say to ourselves, oh, I don't like that, because fire, as you know, hurts. Fire burns. It's painful. And many trials are like fire. They're pain. They're painful into the very depth of our being. Many of the things that we can be called to go through in life, they can be really, really painful. But we also know that fire is used to purify. And that's what God is doing through these things to and for his people. It's not just random, and it's not as if God doesn't know. But through these things, God is purging and preparing his people for the glory that shall be. Because Peter keeps talking about, about this this eternal glory, who has called you to his eternal glory. And he's talking about uh, the, the, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is what it's all working to. And Peter is saying, you've got to have your eye focused upon where you're going. Because the glory that you are to inherit, the crown of glory, is worth all, everything that you're going to go through. But this is all part of the, the preparation. As Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. But in, in the meantime, he is preparing us for that place and he will come and he will take us uh, to be uh, w with himself. But Peter, as he's coming to the end of his letter here, he is speaking at the beginning of this chapter, the first few verses are certainly, he's making it very clear as he goes through this, the importance of humility. And he's highlighting that Verse 5, you are the younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility one, uh, one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And there are few things that mark out a Christian more clearly than the spirit of humility. And you have examples in Scripture, for instance, the likes of Joseph. And Joseph in the prison and Joseph on the throne was really just the same person. The same spirit existed in him, whether it was in the prison or on the throne. It was the same with David. And these were, these were men who were humble before God. We sometimes think of humility and the meekness. And sometimes we think of meekness as being a very... Uh, something that's very, uh, you just say, oh, there's nothing particularly great in being meek. If you're meek, everybody just walks all over you. Well, we've got to think about, it's highlighted in Scripture, 
that Moses was the meekest of all men. And there was absolutely nothing uh, timid or weak in any shape or form about Moses. He was a man of intense strength. He was an incredibly robust, incredibly strong in mind and body. And there was nothing that you would say that it's... Sometimes we think a meek person is the kind of person who wouldn't say boo to a goose. We use that expression. It's meek before God. It's this spirit of putting God first, of exalting God, of not seeking our own good, but the glory and the good of God. And that's what characterized the life of Moses. And that's what God is looking for for from us as well, that we would be seeking to glorify God, to exalt God in our life, not seeking our own will, our own way, but his Now, David, again, is another classic example of that. And we find, I suppose, one of the great examples of David's submission before God is the time, remember when Absalom tried to take over the kingdom, his son, a very difficult time for David, because he loved Absalom. And Absalom was ready to kill David, and he he was turning the nation against his father. And we find David had to run from Jerusalem. And on the way, there was this man, Shimei, began to throw stones at David and curse David. And one of David's men said to David, let me go over there and take that man's head off. And David said, let him alone. He saw that this was from God. And he said, it may be that the Lord will look upon the wrong done to me and that the Lord will one day repay. But leave it. This is God's will just now. And that's really quite remarkable because we know David was an incredibly strong, brave man. But at this particular point, he saw that he saw the hand of God, however difficult, however sore it was, however trying with his son, trying to kill him and uh, take over the kingdom. And then this man throwing stones at him and cursing him. And yet David said, no, leave, leave, leave him alone. And that's the kind of spirit that God is looking for from us. And you know, it's difficult. Because when, if we're maligned, if we're, there is within ourselves one of the most natural responses that we have is revenge. It's a reason, just as kids, if one person hits you, the automatic reaction is to hit back. That's nature. That's the way we are. And so it requires, that's why... Peter keeps talking about grace. We need grace. This is not something that just automatically happens. This is something that, because when God works in us, he works from the inside out. He changes us inwardly so that our outward life begin, becomes different. And so uh, this is, this is what, what we have here. And humility is not easy, particularly when we're in the face of opposition. But we've got to remember, if we're thinking, if before we leave that, this man, Shimei, who was throwing the stones and cursing David, there came a time in this man's life when Solomon was king that Shimei disobeyed Solomon and Solomon put him to death and he reminded him of what he had done to his father. And the, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay And that's part of, it's a great lesson here of how David 
allowed the Lord to look after it. And uh, there came a time when God dealt with this man. And so uh, we, we find that it's important that we are given that grace. And that's why it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And you know what a difference we would find in the church? I'm not just talking of churches and shows, but the church at large. If we had this humility one towards another. Where we were always looking for the greater good. That we were wanting the best. And if our own way, you know, some, there are some people and they say, it's my way or the highway. Well, that's not the way it happens within the Christian church. There has to be humility. There has to be an ability to, to give to, for the greater good and maybe to see things from another perspective, always recognizing that there may be another way and things have to be looked at in a right way. And so humility is an essential. And then, of course, we're warned against, against pride. Uh, it says here, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the more humble you are, the more grace you get. Pride, of course, sets itself up against God. So we're told, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I suppose the first thing we have to ask is, well, how does God humble us? Well, he does it in various ways. There are lots of suggestions. But, for instance, God brings many humbling things into our lives. Many things, it can be a simple, well, it's not simple, but it could be sickness. Uh, it could be, the, there's lots of things that could, could come in where we, our lives are, are changed and we're brought down. We can be brought down physically. We can be brought down mentally. It could be through the collapse of our work. It could be through financial problems. It could be through a host of different things. We find ourselves are being humbled. It tells us of how God led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years to test them and to humble them. And to prove what was in their heart. You see, when Israel left Israel, Israel left Egypt, although they had been slaves, they were proud. And they weren't giving God the glory or acknowledging God. And they were forever grumbling against God. And they were never ready to listen to what God was saying or to go the way that God wanted them to go or to do what God wanted them to do. Forty years later, we find a very, very different Israel. And as they come to enter Canaan, there are nations that are ready to listen to God and to obey God and to humble themselves before God all the time. It took 40 years of humbling, 40 years of God bringing them down little by little by little. Sometimes God humbles us by allowing strong temptations into our lives. And that can be really, really difficult. Where we're given over to a period where it's like Satan is buffeting us all the time. And day and night we're being tempted. And maybe there might have been a day you were a very bright Christian and things were going well and you, you felt that you, were, you really were very much alive and that you were one of the, the main people in the church. And then you get assaulted with these temptations. Maybe even to, you might be bombarded with atheistic thoughts 
that are gaining hold upon you and you can't understand it and it's nearly driving you mad. You're going crazy under it and you're praying for deliverance and it's not coming. Or it could be a host of other types of temptations. Sometimes the Lord allows his people through that and they come out. It's only for a time because God God doesn't allow that sort of thing to go on all the time. God will give God gives Satan sometimes access to us. You read the book of Job, and Satan was complaining before God, and he said, No wonder Job worships you. No wonder Job honors you. No wonder Job is such a good man, because he said you blessed him. And he said, You put a hedge around him and all that he has. In other words, God had put a protection around Job. And Satan was looking for permission to get a job. But he could only get a job by God's permission. And God had permitted, except that he wasn't allowed to take Job's life. And we read the devastation that came about as Satan bombarded Job. And sometimes we will be subject to temptation. And that is, I assure you, is a terribly humbling experience. You'll come out of it different to how you were before you went into it. Again, sometimes we can be humbled by being misrepresented, and that's a very difficult thing, because sometimes it happens, and people are misrepresented. People are, and people be, believe the misrepresentation, and it goes out into the community, and people believe it. And you're saying to yourself, this is not true. This is all wrong. That's a difficult, difficult thing to bear. And it brings, brings people down. We're humbled through these things. There's a host of things. But we're told in this verse that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's, in other words, the humbling hand of God. So how do we humble ourselves? Well, when we begin to look in at ourselves, it's very easy, very quick, very quickly we'll begin to be humbled. One of the things is when we look in with the Word, we see the seed of every single sin resident within our own heart. We are not who we think we are. And that is why Jesus is saying, don't be, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Because the seed of every conceivable sin lurks away within our own heart. And when we discover that, that has a real humbling effect upon us. And then again, sometimes we look at how little we've grown. You know, as Christians, and maybe if you've been following for years, you remember when you started out and everything was so new. And you seemed to be thriving and growing and you had a hunger and you couldn't get enough of the word and you couldn't get enough fellowship and you seemed to be growing and growing and growing. And then years have gone on and you say to yourself, I've grown so little. I grew at the beginning or I seemed to be growing, but I don't seem to be growing now. Or how, what little fruit is there in my life? And I, then again, side by side with that, we then look and say, how little I've done. You look back over your Christian life, and again, when you started out and you were enthusiastic and you were ready to be involved in whatever, 
And then the years have gone on and you look back and you say, oh, where have the years gone? What have I done for the Lord? And then you begin to think, maybe I've done this and I've done that, but did I do it by faith? Who was I serving? Was it myself? Was it for my own glory? Or was it for the Lord? And so you have all these things. And as we really begin to home in and begin to examine ourselves against the word, that has a humbling impact upon us. And then when we, if we see a glimpse of the glory of God, like Isaiah did, then we see just what we're really like. And we say, oh, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then again we look and we're humbled when we see and so often we think how unready we are for death. You know there are times and there might be times when you're really bright as a Christian and you're so bright that you're able to say, you know, even so come Lord Jesus, Lord, I wouldn't mind if you came tonight. There are nights we can actually feel like that. But there are other nights and we'd say, poor. Oh, Lord, don't come just now. I'm not ready. And you know, we, we, we so often we see, I'm not, I'm not ready. If the, if the Lord is going to call for me today, you, you say to yourself. And so all of these things, as we work through them in our heart, in our life, and with the Word, all these things, in fact, ought to, uh, we ought to be humbled by them. But the great thing here we see is that this humbling doesn't go on forever. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, the time that God knows is the right time, he may exalt you. You know that the way of growth begins by going down. That's how it starts. You plant it down, it goes down and then it grows up. And so it is in the Christian life. That's how we, that's how we go. Down first and then up. The way to go up is first to go down. And God will exalt. And you see it right throughout Scripture, whether you look at Joseph's life or David's life, Daniel's life, so many of these lives, they were brought down, but at God's appointed time, they were exalted. And God will lift you up. You might be going through a period tonight where you feel you're really under the mighty hand of God. And you're saying, Lord, how long is this to go on? Is this going to go on forever? No, it isn't. But you know, in a sense, there will be a level of this always going on, humbling and exalting, but there'll come a time when the humbling will be forever removed. The day of humiliation will be over. And it will be the day of exhortation, just as it was for Christ. He's the supreme example of humiliation. He was the one who humbled himself beyond what anybody else ever did, where he left the realms of glory, the second person of the Godhead, to become a sin-bearer for us, to take our sin, to represent us. And when you think of all that he suffered in this life, of what we mentioned there about being misrepresented, nobody was misrepresented more than Jesus. Everywhere he went, that's what they were saying. They were saying, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. He does his miracles by the power of the devil. And that's, that was, the religious leaders were saying that, so that people were saying, well, if they're saying it, it must be true. 
And so there was false fake news about Jesus everywhere he went. That was difficult. Because he was a, a man just in the same way as you and I are, human. But then his exhortation is glorious. And his exhortation is a guarantee for you and for me that we too will experience that exhortation where we'll be brought into the place of unfading glory forever and ever. And as uh, tied in, and just a, a word in this, tied in in verse 7, with the whole idea of humbling ourselves, we find that we are to cast our care That's what it says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, as we know, this is a world riddled with anxieties. And uh, some people are naturally anxious. Some people are pretty chilled in life. Some people, we we all have different temperaments and different personalities. And some people have a greater mechanism of coping than others. But everybody at one level or another is subject to to anxieties. And the, the cause of anxiety can be can range in a huge way. I mean, some people, the, the problems that they face can be really life-threatening. They can be awful situations. And for some people, it might not be so bad. Some people might be driven from their sleep. They can't concentrate. They can't work. Everything has become a, such a major issue because of what they're facing. For others, it might be a slight anxiety. But the, the thing is here, we're told that we are to casting all your anxieties. And you know, that's a beautiful thing that we find here. We're told to cast all our anxieties. And you know, it's interesting how often in Scripture we find that the Lord is telling us to do this very thing. Cast your burden upon the Lord, for he shall sustain you. Uh, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right throughout Scripture, we find this this command in everything by prayer and supplication, and with a request, uh, give give all your cares and worries to the Lord. And the Lord wouldn't be repeating that so often, were it not for the fact that we're so prone to it, and because of the nature of this world, we will have troubles. And we will have anxieties. And so we find that the Lord is here saying uh, that we are to to cast all these anxieties upon the Lord. And it's important to notice that the word is not letting go our anxieties, but casting them. And it's Spurgeon who said there's grace in the grammar, and it's so true because Supposing the Lord said, cast all your anxieties regarding your health on me, or regarding your family on me, or regarding your work on me, or regarding your lack of work on me, or regarding uh, your financial situation, or regarding your soul. If he only said one of these things, you'd say, well, that's that's a wonderful thing. But he doesn't specify because... It, is, it covers everything, from A to Z, casting all, every single anxiety that you have, whatever it is, we are to cast it upon the Lord. And it's not a matter of, just as it were, letting go. Because, you know, we are riddled with unbelief. And so often, 
we we say to the Lord, oh Lord, help me in here. And you, you you feel that you're giving something to the Lord, but you've still got your hand on it. You know what that's like? You give something to the Lord, but you haven't really let it go. And part of that is because of our unbelief. Because we feel that maybe maybe the Lord won't do it properly. Maybe the Lord won't work it out the way we want. Maybe what if he forgets? We have all kinds of questions go on because of our heart of unbelief. But the Lord isn't saying, let go or place. It's casting. It's letting, that's the, the, the word is deliberate here. Casting. Throwing. In other words, be done with. Throw it away as far as possible. Throw it to me. Because when you cast something away, you don't have it anymore. And that's what the Lord is saying. Cast. Again, similar. Cast your burden upon the Lord. It's throw, throw it on to the Lord. And it's important that we do that. Now, you may say to yourself, does that mean that the moment that we really cast our burden, our anxieties on the Lord, that our anxieties are gone forever, that the situation, whatever was causing the problem, is removed? No, that's not what it's saying. But the whole thing changes. Because when we cast on the Lord, there's something important that we do. The Lord that's the key. When we cast upon the Lord, our focus must be, you know, if you throw something, if you're, if you're going to throw a stone at something, you would, you would aim for it. Your, your focus would be on what you're going to try and hit. And your focus is on the Lord as you cast the anxieties. And you keep your focus on the Lord. And as you keep your focus upon the Lord, that's where the change takes place. His peace fills you. Because we were told in Scripture that the one whose focus is stayed on me enjoys perfect peace. That's what, 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 what we're told. That's a, the, 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 the great thing that the Scripture tells us. That we, we enjoy this perfect peace. Uh, when we, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind, in other words, his thoughts are stayed or fixed in you. Because he trusts in the Lord. And so as we cast our burden or our anxieties upon the Lord, we do so because he cares for us. And this is all, it's all in an area of trust. And we recognize as we do so and as we look at him that he's powerful. And that he's able to do for us. Far and beyond anything that we could even ask or think. And if we could stop just for a moment and think, who is it who's writing this letter? It's Peter. And Peter is writing from a standpoint of knowing exactly what he's talking about. Because Peter was somebody who had his own anxieties and troubles in life. And he found Jesus was true to everything. Remember the time when, Peter, when Jesus came into Peter's home and Peter's mother-in-law was seriously ill? That would have caused anxieties in the home. Jesus healed her. You remember the time when Peter was walking in the water and he cried out, Lord, save me, because he was sinking. And Jesus stretched out his hand and took him into the boat. You remember the time after the denial and Peter said to the other disciples, let's go fishing. And the actual language is, let's go back. I'm going back to the fishing. Peter thought he had blown it so much that it was over. 
He had been a fisherman before. He had become a follower of Jesus. And he thought because of the denial that Jesus would no longer have a job, as it were, a a work for him. And that's why he said to them, I go fishing. I'm going back to the fishing. And they went out in the boat, some of the others with them. And remember, Jesus met them on the shores of Galilee. And remember how Jesus restored so lovingly Peter back into office. Remember the night that Peter was due to die. He was in prison. And we find, remember, how the Lord delivered him. So here's this man, Peter, and he's writing this letter. And if any person knew what it was to cast anxieties upon the Lord, it was Peter. I think maybe we mentioned that before. As Peter, he slept like a baby the night before his execution, the execution that he was delivered from. Why did he do that? Because he, was, he had cast his anxieties on the Lord. And he enjoyed that perfect peace. Sleeping like a baby. Knowing that the, the, the sword was to fall on his neck the next day. But he believed the promise of Christ. Remember how Christ had promised when you were old, you'd get the martyr's crown. And he wasn't old yet. So he believed that whatever was going to happen, the Lord would sort it out. So Peter is writing with real authority. And he's saying, the Lord cares for you. And this is the same Lord that Peter's writing about, that Peter knew. And I'm sure all of you have your own stories, your own experiences. Some of them might be dark experiences. But, you know, we're told that the, the troubles that afflict the just in number many be. But yet at length, out of them all, the Lord doth set them free. At length. Sometimes it takes time. Well, you put your trust in the Lord. Seek him. Make him the, the, the focus of your life. And you will enjoy that perfect peace. And ask the Lord for the grace to cast our, your anxieties. And I must do exactly the same upon the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> we pray, O Lord, that we may indeed both humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And that we might be willing to cast all our care, our anxieties upon you. Because you care for us. How wonderful that that's your starting point, that you care for us. So often we read in scripture of how Jesus was moved with compassion. This is the same Jesus who is exalted on the throne of glory, but is shepherding his sheep down below. And so we pray that you'll watch over us. Take us all to our homes safely. Bless our families and all whom we love. And take away our every sin. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.